culture in a nutshell is behaving, walking the walk, talking the talk. If you're going to hold anyone in your organization accountable, that one, you can't go about it respectfully, but two, that the other person that you're holding accountable understands that where you're coming from, that you're coming from a place of, I want this to be better, I want to win. And it's a place of trust and a place of respect. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Southeast Melbourne and Australia's NBL, Simon Mitchell. Coach Mitchell is here today to discuss generating offensive pace, transition get action and DHOs, building a fundamental culture, and we talk Olympic national teams and late game strategy during an always fun start, sub, or sit. A big thank you to the hundreds of coaches and staffs from around the world who've joined Slapping Glass Plus this summer. Your support helps us continue to provide the highest quality content. Listeners of the podcast can receive 10% off the membership by entering SG10 at checkout. For more information on all that's included in the membership, visit slappingglass.com. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Simon Mitchell. Coach, thanks so much for making the time for us this morning. We're really excited to talk to you. Appreciate it, Dan. Really looking forward to it. We want to start with you guys are heading into year three with Southeast Melbourne, and you've had two great years as an expansion team in the top league in Australia. And we want to kind of dig in on what that process has been like from the city, building a culture around the team, you managing all of this stuff. So I want to start with going from that first year and then into year two, what were some of the biggest things on your agenda when getting this program lifted off the ground? I guess lifted off the ground. I mean, when, when we put this together, it was just a piece of paper. We had a, a CEO and Tommy Greer and an operations manager and Rowan Short. But then I was hired and we didn't have an office. We didn't have any equipment, no laptops, nothing. We just had ideas and a whiteboard. We'd get together and just sort of smash some ideas and, on, on what we wanted to be and how we wanted the Phoenix to evolve. And it was an interesting process and one that I'm unbelievably appreciative of getting the opportunity to run an expansion team. You don't get those opportunities too often when they come into the league. So I was really, really taken aback that what we're able to do and, and just the purity of it, like you, you have a blank canvas to do whatever it is you want with a basketball team. So we spent the first couple of weeks of just conceptualizing what we wanted the Phoenix to look like. A little bit about Melbourne, it's particularly Southeast Melbourne. It's basketball crazy. We call it the heartland of basketball in Australia. So if you had to compare it to anything, maybe a little bit like Indiana, it's really, really strong draw to the sport. We have 25% of Australia's registered basketball players all live in the Southeast of Melbourne. Okay. Not the state, but the nation's players. So you know, I've had a lot of great players and coaches come out of here. Ben Simmons played his junior basketball in the Southeast. Bogut's from the Southeast. Penny Taylor, Liz Cambage, great players have come out of this area of the state. So the people know their hoops. It's the hotbed of basketball. So putting this team together, we kind of conceptualize that it can't be just all entertainment. It's got to have a little bit of legitimacy to it for the people to buy in. 
when we started sort of putting together, culture was the number one thing for us that, you know, this team had to be a group of players that played the sport the right way because they're not going to fool the people in the crowds. So we always said, you know, when people leave the game, what do we want them saying about us? Did they play the game hard? Did they move the ball? Did they pressure the ball defensively? And then, you know, were they entertaining as well? I grew up, you know, I'm a kid of the 70s, grew up during the 80s, and, and I remember watching the Minnesota Timberwolves when they came into the NBA. And, you know, they just run the shot clock to 23 and a half seconds. Four games into the season, you couldn't watch them anymore. You know, they just got so bad. So in my mind, going back to, and that's no disrespect to Minnesota. And I mean, they did that to stay in games over 48 minutes. Sure. But in my mind, I was, I was like, oh, that was so tough to watch. Wouldn't it be great to have an expansion team that was you know, really fun to watch? You know, the balls popping and guys are cutting hard. And the concept was to play defensively up the floor. But, you know, personnel kind of changed the way we did things there but you know it was just to make sure that the sport was exciting for us in my mind I had some sort of combination of the passing of the 86 Celtics the toughness of the 89 Pistons and and a little bit of the showboating of the uh, 80s Lakers and (laughs) somehow I'd end up with the 83 76s at the end of it all so for me it was kind of how do we put that together um, from a team standpoint? But retracking a little bit, just the, the issue of culture was really big. One, I was a rookie coach in our league. I wanted the help from the players. Like I, I didn't want to come in, you know, making out like, you know, I knew everything. Also, I had to learn on the floorboards as well at the same time from that perspective. And I didn't want a disruptive locker room to try and cut my teeth in. So we recruited some really sharp veteran players. Um, We made sure that everyone who came into the club were good people who were going to contribute to our culture moving forward and help grow it. And then obviously we wanted to get some good basketballers in as well. But for us, it was really, we we had this rule, it's kind of common in Australian sport, uh, pardon the, the French here, but it was the no dickhead rule. We're not bringing in a guy who can give us 25 and 10 a night if he's a pain in the ass in the locker room. Yep. That was kind of the number one thing on our recruitment. Uh, we didn't want players that brought baggage. We didn't want guys who were pointing fingers, uh, whether it be at the refs, teammates, the coaching staff, front office. We wanted to make sure that we had guys who were going to care for the club, care for their teammates and help grow the sport in our community at the professional level. So those were kind of the most important concepts to us in putting this together. I guess go along with that is we had to build an environment that could grow a culture as well. In the last 20 years, the evolution of coaching, the evolution of caring for your players, not using them as commodities, but you know, I don't really like the term, but the basketball family is what we use out here a lot. We wanted to make sure that people felt like they were really part of something special because it's new and fresh. And we wanted our players to have skin in the game. So we allowed them or enabled them to also set a bit of an agenda when it comes to the environment. So we wanted to put in place all these philosophies of how we wanted our team to look from an aesthetic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, and then we had to go get the players to to do it. But these concepts that we came up with were pretty much in regards to the whole of the staff that we hired to bring in from the front office through to the the medical staff. Um, We just wanted to make sure that we had really, really good people, people that understood what we were and people who could dream big as well. You know, we didn't want to be one of those teams that, okay, over here, you know, expansion happens in AFL football. There's this idea that you get your five, six, seven year grace period to get your training wheels off. We weren't about that. We wanted to make sure that from year one, we could see that this was rolling. There were places this team was going to go. 
Uh, year two, we thought, okay, we're going to build a nucleus at a championship rung team and year three, we're going for it. The way things have panned out, we maybe got a little bit forward on year two than maybe what even what we expected. You know, we were hoping to push for playoffs. We, we were in only just at a tight competition, but, you know, we gave ourselves a shit. You know, we're probably 10 minutes away from maybe making the championship series. We could have come out with something really special, but, you know, it's a building process for us and we're still building. Coach, following up on what you said about building the culture that you wanted to bring in players that you know would be invested and would have input in building the culture. How did you work with your players to build certain aspects of the culture? Culture in a nutshell is behaving, walking the walk, talking the talk sort of thing. But what we really wanted to build was a club where it was very open and honest. Our dealings with everybody in the organization, respectful, but open and honest. We've made sure that we build an environment where players can speak their minds and feel safe. You know, they can walk into my office anytime, say, coach, I'm not happy with A, B, C, and D. I mean, we'll talk about it rather than that sort of brooding in the background and then they tell a teammate, I'm not happy about this. And then another teammate saying, well, we should be doing this or I should be getting this. And it's just a, an environment where there's a trust. If you're going to hold it, a, a teammate accountable or a, a staff member accountable, anyone in your organization accountable to do their job to the best of their ability, that one, you can't go about it respectfully, but two, that the other person that you're talking to or you're holding accountable understands that where you're coming from, that you're coming from a place of, I want this to be better. I want to win. And it's a place of trust and a place of respect. I think it's really important that if you can build those bridges and those lines of communication within your organization, you can build a chemistry that's real and sustainable. Are there any things looking back maybe that you thought were really important that ultimately weren't as important? And then maybe on the flip side, things that if you could do it again, you would spend more time thinking about when you're first building the team. It's something that I think about a lot. Now, straight off the bat, we were an offensive powerhouse. You know, we led the league in scoring. We played an Antony brand of basketball. And the players that we had to select from, there was more good offensive players available than there were potentially, perhaps defensively. And going back, I'm wondering whether or not I just targeted offensive players. I, I can't really be... Too sure. Again, it was culture pieces that we we're looking for, guys who are really strong in the locker room and good workers and good in our community. I would like to have built this team a little more around our defensive philosophies. But at the same time, I think back is like we wanted to be an entertaining team. We wanted to make sure that you know, we put bums on seats and people came back. But yeah, it would be nice if we were a little stronger in our first year defensively. We made great strides last year, and that was, you know, again, the focus of our. You know, recruitment was getting a little bit of length on the wings and hopefully a shot blocker. Now, we didn't land a shot blocker and we will in year three, but it was sort of like we just didn't have that safety net. And I feel like there was times, I think we lost like seven or eight games by six points or less in our first season. And you just think that's one possession a game, two possessions here where you might get beaten a back cut and you compete at the rim, but you don't get a block. You know, someone scores on you on something that where you're like, okay, we didn't have a safety net on that. And you're watching the other teams and they've got this, you know, they get a block or two here. And, and we were, again, last in the league in block shots last year. I, I probably should have gone and got that rim protector just to clean up a few of our mistakes while we we're growing. So for me, you got to have that rim protection. Coach, transitioning into, you've mentioned your offense here a few times and the entertaining value of it and how fast you guys play. And I know for Pat and I, we really love diving into your playbook. And so we'd like to talk now about a couple of specifics of your offense. And we'd like to start with your philosophy on 
pace after a made shot. So your made shot flow into your half court offense, which from our standpoint, you guys seem to flow quickly and easily into all of your sets and actions. So to start, like just hear your thoughts and your philosophy on the pace after a made shot. Well, pace is important to me. And I go back to playing days 30 years ago where what's the most fun way to play the game? You know, you want to get up defensively full court and you're into the ball and and offensively you want to get out and run in transition. I just loved playing the game that way. You didn't want to walk it up. You didn't want to sort of sit back in a 2-3 zone under the three-point line. You wanted to be out and playing and being athletic and doing fun things. So from a coaching standpoint, I've always maintained in my mind what was the funnest way of playing and then try to build around in the enjoyment of the game. So for me, pace is really important. It involves more players from an offensive standpoint. More guys get touches. Uh, More shots go up, so more players get shots. That makes players pretty happy. Those are are little things, but at the end of the year, I mean, even from a recruitment standpoint, if you're getting 90 shots up a game compared to 65, I mean, your stats are going to look a little nicer, right? It it makes it a little easier to recruit. Like your guys have been down there like, man, I could get in on that, (laughs) which I'm being a little facetious about it, but it's true. We actually, one of the draw cards of us being able to bring players in has been that the style of play, you know, it it looks like it's fun. It, It is fun. So pace is really important and you've got to try and, for me, whether, you know, quite often after a made bucket, you see these teams, I'll walk it up the floor. You can get any analytics you want. I enjoy that side of the sport, but it's not where I came from. But I'm sure all the analytics will tell you that you score more in transition than you do in a half court. Yeah. So it's kind of pertinent for us to get into transition as much as possible and make good decisions at the end of it. At least put your toe on the water and just see if there's a little something there, if you can gain a little advantage. So for me, from an offensive standpoint, whether it's a score or off a turnover or whatever, you've got to try and drop the toe on the water and see if there's an easy basket to be had there. So scoring after a made basket, for me, firstly, you've got to get the – we have a designated passer in, which is our foreman. Now, the foreman that we've had in our team have all been good passers, good ball handlers, and make good decisions. That's our guy who gets the ball in each and every time. Now, he knows when that shot's going up. Well, usually he's hitting the boards anyways as as a big, but he knows when that shot goes up. If it goes in, he's got to get that ball out of the net, get out from underneath the backboard and get the ball in quickly. Everyone knows their role once they see the ball go through the net. You've got your two and your three man running their routes. You've got your five man as your lead post, and we're off to the races ready to go. So for me, it's about that four man making sure that he's spot on, gets the ball out of the net clean, gets the ball out of the net quickly, And that one man gets the ball thrown to them on the move. Now, again, this is something I'm always harping on my players about, especially after free throws where teams like to get up the floor in Australian League and and press, is that sometimes we leave that one man there just to get open on his own. If we can just get a little bit of a clip screen to free him up a little bit, even if it's just amongst the congestion after a made shot of just maybe dropping a shoulder into the opposition point guard and just yeah. <laughs> getting a little bit of separation, we encourage that just to free that guy up. But for me, it just makes sense to try and get out and run. Now, we have, and we'll go into the exercise a little bit here, we've got two of our transitions. Now, after made buckets, as I said, our four-man trail. So we've got a couple of different sets that we can get into in a secondary offense with the four-man trail, and we have also sets that we run with the five-man trail. But after made buckets, it's always the four-man. So if we're going at pace and nothing happens and you're into your secondary offense, the guys on our team, they know what they're in straight away, either by the first pass with a kick ahead, a DHO from the one to the two, or a ball reversal. Nothing needs to be said amongst our playing group. 
they know what set we go into from that standpoint. So it's rather orchestrated, even though it may look a little chaotic. Coach, two questions. One quick one with encouraging them to maybe bump the point guard's defender. Is that just if I'm a wing and I'm in the vicinity and I can kind of hit them to do it? Or is it you want the center as he's like making his rim run, maybe to seek out the point guard's man a little bit? It's whoever's nearest. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. For me, bumping, greening, getting tangled up, they're all a little bit of an art form. You see the great guys at it, going back to your Dennis Rodmans, who are always in a little bit of a skirmish after. I mean, it's not by accident. There was always an element of why he wanted to be in that situation. And if you just happen to stumble into someone's defender accidentally, because you're tied up and all that sort of stuff, and it frees him up in the meantime, then I'm pretty happy with that. And then my second one with the catch, I know you said you want the point guard catching on the move. Are you trying to get him to an area to catch? Does it matter as long as he's just on the move to create that pace? Do you have any sort of outlet spots? The guy I played under for a number of years out here in Australia was Brett Brown, recently of the 76ers. And, and he used to always say, you know, you've got to hang your ass over the sideline as a point guard. And I kind of have sat with that one, the old collegiate way of catching the ball with your back to your own basket. And then you've got to turn around and bring it up. It never resonated with me as like, get yourself side on, you catch that ball, you can whip it up the sideline straight away. You can see the floor. So I like to get my guys catching it side on with their butt over the sideline as much as possible and free throw line extended if you can. Now that's your starting point. You don't receive it there because it can be a little bit of a long pass. And if there's pressure up the floor, I don't want a high risk pass entering the ball. But if we can get it there and it's a safe pass, great. That's our starting point, and then we start to come back to the ball from there. So the higher, the wider, the better. It enables you to see that floor, and it enables you to play at pace, obviously, if you're on the move going towards your basket when you receive that as well. Now, it doesn't work, and normally it won't after a made basket, but sometimes if it does, then you're off to the race. If it doesn't, just come back to the ball, and we'll get into our sets. With the guard, if he gets the outlet, Do you mainly want him to stay on that right side or can he cross and get to the left side or would you rather just play then through the reversal? It's a good question. I'd love to see that ball cross the center point of the the floor in the midst of transition. Like for me, you receive it on the sideline, you've got to start bringing it to the circle in the middle of the floor. And I don't care which side of the circle you bring it, whether it's left or right. We have a gravitation to the right side of our floor with our team. (laughs) And I can't tell you why, (laughs) but we do. Our guards have gravitated to the right side and and they head in that direction. And our offense generally starts on the right side. Mm -hmm. But I don't have a preference as to we start right or left. I do like to see the ball crossing from one side to the other. It's a little bit of a disruptor. Defenders who get back all of a sudden, they've gone from sitting on the split line to actually having to go and guard theirs. And then you might just get that one time in 10 where the opposite side of the floor don't react, they don't uh, shift, and then you might get yourself an easy basket. Again, I go back to that toe in the water concept. Just try. You know, nine times out of 10, it won't work, but it costs you nothing, so go and try it anyways. Coach, kind of a philosophical one again on pace and this one with shot selection. I think sometimes there's the misconception of if you're going to play fast and play with pace that guys are kind of wild and take quick, tough shots. But watching you guys play, you play with great pace. The ball gets up the floor into your actions, but then the shot selection is very high. How do you work on and teach playing fast with pace, but also taking great shots? Yeah, I think you nailed it right there, playing fast. Pace to me doesn't mean fast. 
we try and separate those two words, fast from pace. Pace, yes, we want to play with speed. We'd love to see the ball fly up the sideline, get down in transition and, and attack the rim. Those opportunities are there, great. If they're not, bring it back out. And as I talked about earlier, we've got our flow into our secondary offense, whether it be the five-man trail or the four-man trail, we've got different actions to those situations. And for me, pace, it's more defined than just playing with speed. For us, pace is ball popping. And it might not necessarily be north-south, could be Mm east-west. Okay, going back to that concept of shifting the defense, if it's going from side to side but with purpose, then, you know, you can generate pace that way. You can generate pace for me is being patient on a screen, walking your man in, getting open off a screen and coming from A to B with pace. So it's not necessarily just about running fast. It's playing with power, playing with purpose and playing with pace. It feels like the five Ds of dodgeball, doesn't it? But it's... uh, yeah, right, dip, dodge, dodge. You can dodge a wrench. You can dodge a ball. Yeah. Yeah, right. Sorry, that wasn't right. orchestrated, but it's it's um, <laughs> those things all contribute to your pace. It's not just about playing with speed. And shot selection is so important. You know, we've been up amongst the league leaders in shooting percentage our first two years, and I think that's a lot down to the shots that we take. And because our offense flows from transition into our secondary, into our half court, like it all flows into one. We don't feel like there's an urgency to get the shot up. We like to see the ball popping as much as possible, but there has to be a purpose behind it. You see those teams that reverse the ball from side to side, side to side, but they don't break the three-point line. We want to make sure there's penetration, whether it's through pass or off the dribble. We want to see that ball entering the three-point line and it can come back out, but we want to make sure that there's some sort of penetration there as well. Coach, stay on this thread of teaching pace other than, you know, of course, walking it up, what are maybe some of the things that you find yourself like on day one of practice and training camp, like you're going to have to harp or drives you nuts that kind of kills the pace or the flow you want to play with? Yeah, well, one, I, I can't stand the walking it up concept. Now, every now and then you're going to be forced to, you've got to take a side out and the defense is sitting back there and it's like, okay, well, there's not much point sprinting it up the floor when they're sitting there waiting for you. But again, going back to pace, you know, is it necessarily leg speed? You know, I want to see that ball moving quickly. I want to see guys waiting on screens and when they've come off a screen, not just sort of coming off at half pace, coming off from A to B with absolute purpose and the intent that you're going to be open and you're going to be in a position to score after you catch the ball. And just constantly selling the concept that everything is live. Yeah, we run some dummy action, but I want you to think it's dummy. I want to encourage you to think, hey, there might be some live action here for me. The way our scoring is spread, which I think attests a little bit to the belief in our group that everything is live, is that we had like six guys average double figures last year. You know, there's a little bit of everybody gets their opportunity in the way we do things, but you're only going to get your opportunities if you're keeping everything live. And I go back to that one in 10 chance of getting a score out of something. If you don't do it, the right way, then it's zero out of 10. So just keeping everything live, everything with purpose. One of the things we've not been great at in our first two years, and it's certainly not by design, but it's it's personnel driven, is we've not been a great isolation team. In fact, last year, we're the worst isolation team in the NBL by the numbers. So for us, if we don't move that ball quickly, you generally find yourself in an isolation or a late pick and roll. I mean, we're pretty good in late pick and rolls, but if we're in isolation, we're not in a good spot. And if that ball's being held too long, we're not in a good spot. And, and, and you know, offensive failure is yeah. sort of pending for us if we get found out in that situation. So when guys are holding the ball, that's a bit of a killer for me. Coach, so staying on that thread, the use of the get action or the pass and follow or handoffs, 
in transition specifically as a way to keep pace of your offense. Your thoughts on the handoff in the secondary break? Yeah, I love it. We drill the heck out of it. Our shooting drills to start the day are quite often three on zeros. Incorporate all of our secondary offensive movements. And a lot of that's with the DHOs and the, the guard get action. Again, it's generating speed in the half court. It's generating, again, pace. For me, you know, if you spend six, seven minutes on a shooting drill and you incorporate the theory behind that, it's just constantly reinforcing the playing with pace. I love it. Again, when you get guard, get action, depending on whether or not you use the screen or if you twist the screen and come back the other way, again, you're shifting that defense constantly. And a lot of our early offense might be a guard-to-guard DHO on the sideline, kicking it back to the trailing four. And now it's like, okay, we've got the defense shifting from one side. We've got a guy chasing the ball. I've got a four-man who can keep it and get himself on the rim. It creates a lot of havoc for the defense. And provided it's done safely and provided it's done with pace and purpose, it can be really effective from an offensive standpoint. Coach, what do you mean safely, that it's done safely? Again, I'll go back to setups. We're very strong with that sort of action and and teams obviously scout us and they're going to try and take things away. And the DHO can have an element of danger to it. And we've got some guys in our league who specialize in blowing it up. So for me, it's got to be a safety. You just don't DHO for the sake of it. It's got to be safely. You turn the ball over and the way we run our offense, because we got our corners deep, it's hard to get back in transition off a turnover. We're going to make sure that everything's done with safety. You know, I don't want to take the flair out of guys' game, but if there's a 50-50 sort of proposition, take the conservative route in those situations for me. And again, if there's no DHO there, it's a fake DHO, you kick it back your own way and you're off, you get guard, get action that way. So, you know, I just want to reduce the risk and reduce the turnovers and that. Within that conversation, reducing the risk, do you stress any technique? In the DHO, how you want the handoff? Do you want maybe sometimes them to toss it? Or is it just the feel you trust the players to make that? It's just more the decision of should you or should not do it? Yeah, again, I think a lot of it's in the setup. And it's not just the setup with the guy coming off the DHO. It's the setup with the player with the ball. So if I'm coming down the right side of the floor, kind of at a 45 angle, I probably want to be dribbling to the center like I'm going to make a play with the trailing four and then quickly come back to the wing and get the DHO. So you're setting it up that way. The two man knows what's happening. He's walking his man in. Okay, he's getting first contact on the defender. So now he's ready to push off and come back to the ball. So it's really just the nuances of creating a safe environment to hand that ball off. It's so important and we constantly nagging our point guards to make sure that there's a certain dummy action before the action just to get the defense a little bit committed one way or the other. And if they don't commit, then stay with it sort of thing. So it's something that even, again, going back to the three-on-o drills that we start our sessions with, you know, we're going to pull up that drill straight off the bat if the offense is going through the motions and straight line dribbling and, and not sort of selling something before they go to something else. So it's real, for us, it's really important. Coach, Pat knows how much I love dribble handoffs, so (laughs) excuse me for nerding out here for a second. But (laughs) My question is on the communication between the big who's giving the handoff and the guard coming to get the handoff. And when you're flowing within the offense and the difference, if there is one within your offense between a pass ahead to an on-ball from the big or sort of a toss to an on-ball or just a straight handoff, and the communication between the big and the guard as to which action you may or may not run. Do you have any of that within the offense or do you prefer one or the other? 
the little flip pass or the tosses you were calling it, it's such a hard one to defend. Right. I love that action because, I mean, teams will come into a game with, okay, we're going to defend a DHO this way. We're going to defend a pass and follow action this way. Right. But when you get that sort of toss pass, that flip, that's somewhere in between. And you might get a little miscommunication from the defensive side of things. Right. But we don't teach that. We mm-hmm. trust the player. Or we don't have a preference on that. We allow the players to make basketball decisions on that. But if we can mm-hmm. encourage that little toss play, oh, man, it can create some hell for the defense. Okay. Coach, we've talked about you know, using the handoff, the toss or the pass. I'm curious and watching your team, you don't see a lot of it off the made shot or the secondary, but the drag screen. Yeah. Do you purposely try to avoid that? Or where do you stand on after a made getting into a drag screen? It's something that we started to bring in a little bit more as the season went on, especially in the playoffs. We actually went to the drag a little bit more. So just to sort of, you know, giving away a couple of trade secrets here, but anyone who sits down and watches our videotapes enough will, will pick up on it. So I can give them a shortcut. <laughs> so if our four man's trailing the play and our five man's the lead post, okay, we can DHO with the trailing four. Again, our, our four is a, Mitch Creek, who's an agile, athletic, can put it on the floor, robust getting on the rim, a sort of player. So that's an offensive action that can be profitable. We can reverse the ball through him or we can go with the mid pick and roll off the trail and start our offense through the other side of the floor. So those are generally the things we do with the four. Now, with the five man, we'll run some quicks action. So ball come down and say the right side of the floor. He'll just go pin down to the left side and bring the, a shooter coming off. Or he can come to the ball and set the drag screens. So for us, those are kind of the coordinates of, okay, you're the four man trailing. These are your three options. You're the five man trailing. you got two options. Screen away or screen on the ball. We're not going to reverse the ball through you. Don't trust you just yet. Okay. <laughs> Four man, you got our trust. Five man, eh, we're going to keep that ball out of your hands just as much as we can and get you in the pick and roll at the end. You got to sell them the pick and roll at the end of the play for them. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> We'd rather see the offense start with a screen. Our tendency, because we've got really good shooters on the wings for our five-man, and our five-man last year was a a rookie in Yanni Wetzel, was that he wanted to go get free up that guy as much as possible so we can bring a Cam Glidden or a Ryan Brockoff off for a catch and shoot early in the offense. But as the season wore on or in the playoffs, you know, we're heavily scouted. You're playing a team in a multiple-game series. They're taking things away. We went the other way and started to go a little bit more with the drag, which our five men liked because it got them involved in the offense a little earlier. But uh, sure. <laughs> as we evolve and we grow, you know, having those two options and finding a balance between which ones to use and understanding your teammates better, that'll evolve for us. We had some complexities in bringing in that system. There was mistakes made, especially when you had a, a guy like we had last year, Ben Moore, who could be playing the four or the five. And all of a sudden he received the ball at the top of the key and was like, oh, hang on, is he the four or the five? If he's the five, why has he got it? Like We just had to start to work through those issues that we had early in the season. So we kept it a little simple, mostly with our quicks or our, our quick pin down on the weak side with the five-man trailing. But I love the drag screen. I just feel like when you've got good pick and roll players and a good five-man who rolls on the rim, that it just creates a whole bunch of issues early in the offense. So it's something that will continue to evolve and continue to develop. Coach, I've got just a real quick technical follow-up. You mentioned earlier on about you have the four-man take it out every time. And have you ever had conversations about potentially the closest player to the ball on a made shot taking it out and what that might do 
to the flow of your transition? It is the four man takes it out, but if he's like closed out a really long three or something like that, and that there is a nearest guy, then occasionally that's going to happen. What I like about the four man take it out, one is he's probably over the first two years been our second best ball handler on the floor. Right. And he's just way more agile than other four men. So it beats pressure when he's involved in the play and you can kick it back to him and he can run the offense. Like we can start, we can get into a little delay action with him or you can just start the offense like it's being kicked to him in a reversal. But it starts with him. For me, it's been a safety valve there. What I like is the clarity of role in that he is wired in saying, I know where I've got to be. Our wings know that you've got to get out and run the floor. Uh, We like to run our guys all the way to the corners. If you're busy getting the ball and you're probably not going to hit that corner and bounce off. So, And the five man, I want you the hell out of there. You get your head on the rim. I don't want turnovers. Get out of there. (laughs) I've got to start showing more love for the five man one because we're recruiting for one. <laughs> yeah. Two, I'm watching Team USA without one right now, and then you start to appreciate yeah. how important that they really are. But yeah, for me, it's about role clarity. And if you've got one designated person there, so be it. Now, again, we allow our guys to make basketball decisions. If the ball lands in your hands after a make, all you got to do is step out and throw the ball in. And it's not going to slow us down it's, and it's not going to take us out of our shape. I'm happy for players to make that decision. Well, any five men listening to this podcast, you should just tell them that you're looking at them to be a four man uh, <laughs> next year. Is there a five man not wanting to be a four man <laughs> yeah. these days? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Coach, I, I'm curious with, we've talked a lot about kind of these secondary actions that you have within your offense. Are they all like read based as far as, you know, what the point guard does with the ball, whether he throws or reverses it, like dictates in the action. Or like you said, we see the five-man trailing. So that means we're going to read the five-man if he screens away or comes to the ball. Is that how you play your offense, especially with generating the pace? Yep. I mean, there's as you build your chemistry, there's that sort of unspoken communication out on the floor. It might be the one man just sort of giving a nodding a wink to the five man or it might be the five man running the floor and he sees the three man setting his up on the weak side or it could be the four man he's got a big cumbersome bloke guarding him it's like okay we're going to get DHO here and send him downhill there's an element of just drilling the heck out of it it's very simple concepts but we spend a lot of time on concepts and building that chemistry to the point where the players can operate pretty much without having to talk about it. It's just purely off, okay, I see player A doing this action, player B knows where he's got to do it, how he has to counter that action. Playing with this pace, and like you said, I mean, watching, you'll have your shooters, or you want them coming off hard off those screens or running into those gets. How do you teach shooting off a pace? With success and not just, you know, you think, oh, we're going to play fast, but then you can't make anything because your shooters are just wildly coming off screens. Yeah. So I mentioned a little earlier, we'll start with our three on O drills at practice where it's game-like. We've got to make, try and create an environment at our practice where everything we do in regards to our shooting during the practice is going to be done at game pace and game shots and specific to what we do. So we've been really privileged with the guys that we've had through our first two years. One, they've got incredible work ethic. I think also the development of our culture that we will hold each other accountable. If we see a guy just sort of three-quarter pacing it into a catch and shoot and it's just sort of nice and easy and he doesn't break a sweat and gets his feathery jump shot off at the end and it's sort of like guys are going, 
come on, man. That ain't game pace. Let's go. Let's go. Let's pick it up. And the coaches will be cracking the whip on that one as well, making sure that guys are playing it at the pace that's required. So I feel like, yes, you want to get your touch. You know, that's before practice starts. Go in there, we'll get a coach in the gym with you and get your three-quarter pace jumpers going there and get your touch and feel good about yourself and all those sorts of things. But once we hit the practice floor as a group, then everything should be done at game pace. Otherwise, you're robbing yourself of opportunities to get better. We want to make sure that we use every moment of our time together to make sure that we're collectively getting better. And so it's a big emphasis at our training sessions to do everything at game pace. Have you found there's a footwork that works better, when, especially when you're coming off with such pace to shoot? Good question. It really depends on which shot you're getting off coming off that screen, doesn't it, as to what, what footwork's going to be best. But coming off one, two step, turning it over your inside shoulder is obviously at pace a little bit easier. But again, you can't determine how the defense is going to defend a pin down, for instance. You know, they might shoot the gap on that. So it may be as a little bit of flare action to that where you reverse pivot yeah. into it, uh, Reggie Miller style and let it go. So we practice all of it. And we get all the footwork going there and we've got pretty high level shooters. We've recruited high level shooters, their IQ, their ability to get themselves free and their legs under them into those shots is pretty good. So I'm a little trusting in those guys, probably more than our five men <laughs> of uh, getting themselves free and getting themselves ready to pull the trigger on those. Well, coach, we'd like to transition now into a, a segment that we call here on the show, Start, Sub, or Sit. It's kind of a quick hitting lightning round type of segment where we're going to give you three basketball topics and then ask you to start one, you'd sub one, or sit one. And we can kind of have a fun little discussion around your answer. So to start, I know you're a student of the game and you like studying teams from all around the world. So these are three countries right now that are in the Olympics. So start, sub, sit. Uh, if you were to study another country and all the basketball that takes place in that country, start, sub, or sit. Spain, Italy, or France? Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh, that's tough because there's three of my favorites right there. <laughs> We've had people do variations and start everybody, sit everybody. I mean, I guess if you if it's if you have family in all those countries, then maybe. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> the job of coaching is making decisions, yeah, right? And, exactly. and living by the decisions. So I'm going to start France. And the reason I'm starting France, I'm going to go to their domestic league. The Jeep Elite League to me is a really good place to scout for Americans to come into the, our league. It, it's played at a little bit more higher pace than other parts of Europe. We've had some players that have transitioned from that league into the Australian league and done really well. Casper Ware was one, John Robertson, uh, David Anderson, like they, these guys have come in and, and made remarkable transitions into our league. So I'm going to start the French, okay? Okay. I'm going to bring the old Warriors from Spain off the bench. <laughs> I think just they're... Okay. they're uh, the Spanish league is really big and physical and um, they might need that. Yeah, at the pace of the game at the start, uh, we're going to bring them off the bench. And sorry, the Italians, you're out. <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm going to drop some heat for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, and which we have noticed, that the, the NBL, they play with such great pace. I guess, how would you describe the league? Is the league trying to, you know, push the teams to play one way as far as the rules they implement or what is kind of Australian basketball, the first league? We're probably more modeled on the NBA than Europe. One of the things we become with our Next Stars program, which is bringing in young guys from 
well, anywhere around the world, but primarily the United States, and giving them a platform to build an NBA career has been important to the growth of our league. And I feel like the league in itself and the way it's adjudicated has shifted to more of an NBA style. We used to be a far more physical league. And I thought there was kind of a last year, a little bit of a shift back, maybe a little bit of a correction. So two years ago, Lamello's year in Australia, it seemed like if you went within three feet of a guy from a defensive standpoint, the whistle would blow and guys would be lining up at the free throw line. I think last year they allowed a little bit more physicality back into the league, but certainly we have our own unique style, our own unique way of playing the game, which I think it's fantastic. I do love the way the game's played all over the world. I think each country has its own attributes and uh, stylistically it fascinates me the way each league plays I kind of feel like Australia's really found a, a niche of being not too much about entertainment say like the NBA where you know it's almost to the point now where the NBA players struggle to play FIBA rules it's almost a different sport because of the way the rules are set and the, the officiating and I feel like Australia's in a really good spot as far as aesthetically pleasing basketball but doesn't quite have the rough and tumble of say like the Spanish league or the Serbian league where you know there's almost Greco arm wrestling going on in, at times but it's also not soft so I feel like Australia's found that really good balance which is why it's an entertaining league the other the thing about our league that's kind of unique is that we're going into there's nine teams this past season but there's gonna be 10 teams next year you play each other four times it's like a playoff series every time you're playing another team is so right. familiar with what they wanting to do i think from a scouting standpoint it's one of the higher level leagues because you're so familiar with your opposition which brings another uniqueness to our league it's a good league it's a growing league I think our uh, owner and Larry Kesselman's done a fantastic job of promoting the league and I think it's played at a high standard. We've got good players and good coaches. So it's a league on the, definitely the trajectory is up. Staying on that point that you play each team four times, do you have to add to your playbook as you're facing these teams for the third or fourth or is it more doubling down and getting better at what we do? Yeah, a bit of both. We got a crosstown rival, Melbourne United, and they've got four guards that will blow up your DHOs. Like they'll literally put you in a headlock to try and stop you coming off that and the refs will allow it. So for us, it may be, okay, we're going to steer clear of that action and go to something else. And we talked earlier a little bit about bringing in more drag screens when we play that group. Our pick and rolls may be a little bit higher. You know, they might be five feet higher than the three-point line, so we create a little bit more space to combat their length. Those little adjustments to what you already have, but also as you're going through the film and you see the way they defend things, you got three or four days lead up, you may be able to implement a couple of nuances or changes to your structures to, to try and combat the way they do things, which makes it really difficult from a coaching standpoint. You got to fly off the seat of your pants at times because I always been telling everyone, like once you beat a team, it's really hard to come back next game and beat them again because everyone's made the adjustments to what worked. And you're kind of fat in the farm sometimes when you've got your victory, you know, you're like, hey, we're pretty damn good. And you sort of rest on your laurels and it's sort of like, oh, this worked for us, this worked for us, this worked for us. And then all of a sudden you come up against them in a week's time and it's like none of that worked because they're blowing everything up. So you've got to almost stay one step ahead of the game. It's like you had all these four things that worked for you you might need to go to something else next game to continue with that momentum. So it's a tough balance. There's some coaches there that I know if we something worked for us one game, it's not going to be there the next game. All right, coach. My start sub sit 
is you're going to have an undersized point guard. So what would you value? Start, sub, sit. He's a knockdown shooter. He's an elite finisher in traffic, or he has the ability to make any pass in the pick and roll for his size. Wow. I was going to say he's got to be able to defend 90 feet of the floor, but... <laughs> we, we stuck with the offensive side, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, got, we love our pocket rockets in Australia. We, we got a lot of smaller point guards that come in and do wonderful things. You know, with our group this year, I'm going to get the guy that can make the pass. We've got those guys that can knock down the three ball at every other position on the floor except that goddamn five man. Um, <laughs> but it's... Uh, but it's um, yeah, he's going to be setting the screen, so we're spreading really that good, floor. Yeah. I'm going to get my one guard. I'm going to get my point guard making decisions. He's got to feed the family, so <laughs> I'm going to have him feed the family. So he's it's passing to start. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, I'm going to have him finishing for second, and then knocking down a three ball third. Jeez, that's a tough call. I think again, just with the personnel that we have, we're going to have plenty of letting it go from three point territory next year. So he's getting cut. That guy will penetrate the finisher off the rim at uh, <laughs> off the bench. Absolutely, coach. I'd like to follow up, but I know uh, with the five man actually, and within sort of what we're talking about with the pick and roll and a guard coming off. Uh, one of the things we've noticed watching your film is your five man is very active yep. rolling and then coming back up for a handoff and then, you know, spraying it out. How do you work on and, and sort of teach that five man to be someone that's a threat within the offense? Run no plays for him. <laughs> Run nothing for the five man and he'll keep him hungry. He'll keep coming up. He's like, I got to get my hands on the ball. I got to keep. <laughs> right. Nah, it's, it's something that we really one, when we're recruiting a five man, we're looking for that guy who can make the second effort, who can do a deep roll, not get the ball, not feel discouraged, know that he's going to come and make the second play afterwards and do it again with pace. And again, we emphasize that word. I don't want him ambling up where his five-man can trail on him and and stay connected and and be up at the level of the on-ball. I want separation. So now there's an element of, okay, I can't get to the level of on-ball now in drops and we've got those point guards that are great pull-up shooters that enables us to go get what we want. So we preach about that second play, the third play, to keep yourself available and to make sure you get separation on that. I know I'm showing a lot of disrespect to the five men around the world right now. I grew up, my favourite player of all time was Moses Malone, so my love is deep for the five men, but... We do look to use the player that's got the repeat efforts, you know, and sometimes they become in a, a little bit of a smaller package. Like our five men have been a bit smaller. We had a five man, a 6'10, less mobile center our first year, and he struggled to make those plays. Um, he'd make the deep roll and he'd sit and watch the rest of the offense. And so he ended up not playing for us, even though he was one of our American recruits. So it's uh, the repeat effort guy is really important for us in the way we structure things and the way we spread the floor. With the repeat effort, do you find that it's more the mentality of the player or is it a teachable skill? I think it's definitely a teachable skill and it might be the mentality that you're teaching. The one thing players always react to is court time. Yeah. Okay. If you give them a role, if you give them an expectation, if their teammates understand your role and the expectations of you, then they can hold you accountable during the course of the game. It's like, hey, I need you coming up a little higher, a little quicker. They can hold you accountable as well as the coaches at the sideline. But it's really comes to role clarification. What's the expectation on the player? And it's their job now to fulfill that expectation 
And if they don't, then there's a seat with me. You don't have to overcomplicate the matter. But at the same time, when you're putting your team together, don't get the seven foot, 300 pounder that can't get up and do the repeat effort things. I mean, now you're, you're putting him in a position to fail. It's a little bit on us in regards to how we recruit. But once you're in our house and we've recruited you, you've got to play by the way we ask you to, otherwise there's a seat. So it's trainable, but it's also on us to make sure we put players in a position to succeed. Coach, just my follow-up to your answer on the start subset. Um, I know it was a tough decision, but you had the sit was the, the shooter. I'm wondering, though, your thoughts on if a defense is consistently going under a guard in the pick and roll, uh, your philosophy on trying to still make them a threat, whether it be through slipping the action or rescreen or just ways that you can eventually get maybe someone to go over on them? Really good question there. And, and we've been pretty lucky. Well, not lucky, I guess, was with our recruitment, we've gone and got guys that can knock down that shot. Like year one, we had John Robertson, who outside of Steph Curry might be the best shooter at the one spot on the planet. So no one yeah. ever went under him. And if they did, then you know we're just back on defense because that was dropping. Sykes was yeah. a little bit different. Certainly could knock it down. A little bit more explosive of an athlete than John and could get his feet in the paint a little deeper. Our philosophy on that is if the defense goes under, twist it. Straight away, just twist it. I love it. Uh, twisting it, one, again, the defense is shifting. And it's a short shift as well. All of a sudden, it's, you know, you got your strong side defense, your screen comes out. It's like, okay, they're getting into the help side and the defense is flaring out on the other side. And all of a sudden, it's coming back again. If you go under, then you're opening yourself up to be messed with a little bit on that. So twist it and attack. Yeah, okay. And we've got great short rollers as well out of that four spot. Again, the way we recruit and the way we organize it, if it's the four man at the start of the offense and they're going underneath it, then, yeah, we can certainly get them on a short roll um, if the defense is going under and get him attacking on the rim. Is there maybe an angle you'll teach with that first screen to encourage the defender to chase over? Yeah, depending on the play and the action that we have, we certainly do mess with the angle on that screen. So if you want them to chase over, just set that screen a little lower and maybe don't even make contact. Let them get over the top on that one. No, we certainly mess with the angles and the levels that we set our screens on, depending on the action that we want at the back end of that. So certainly a teaching point for us. Yeah, okay. So coach, my last one here, start sub sit on a post catch. These are actions for your four man. Your, your preference of actions on a post catch. So you enter it to your five. <laughs> and we, we finally give them the ball here, maybe on a post catch. But enter to the five, start subset other actions with your four. So having him dive to the opposite dunker spot, having him flare or set some sort of screen on the perimeter, or having him space. I love weak side action when the ball gets in the post. And that's kind of a, a trait of Australian basketball. You watch the NBA, the, the ball goes into the five man in the post. And there's a lot of standing around, reading newspapers, uh, putting your feet up on that weak side. I mean, there's so much yeah. more space, I guess, as well. And the, the five men are so talented that it's a little bit different game in Australia. So I love the weak side action. So I'm going to go with the, the four-man diving to start with and then okay. spacing out the opposite three-point corner. <laughs> <laughs> Um, sorry, what were my other ones? There's, there's just the spacer. He's going to be off. He's going to be okay. out of there. What was the second one? A flare or a, you know, ah, okay, yeah. yeah. Actually, let me put him in as a starter. We'll get the diver as the, the off the bench and, and, and the guy standing around just sort of uh, reading the paper. He, he can find something else to do. Okay. <laughs> Coach, the dive, uh, which is now coming off the bench for you, the timing on it, 
when do you want him diving? Do you want him to wait and see if the, if you dump it to the five, have him go right away? Or what's the, the thought on the dive? I think a little bit of it's how you're being defended on that one. Okay. You know, if you've got a four man who can shoot the ball, it may start with a little bit of a getting down, ready to catch and shoot stance, get that defender to close out and then go. If he's right up on you, you might want to chuck him a little bit, dive. So I feel like one thing you need to do, though, is when that ball goes into post is that you almost want to get eye contact with that five-man before you make a move, unless it's very, very orchestrated and well-rehearsed, just so that, uh, again, it'll minimise the turnovers if you kind of can see each other. I always call it the smoky bar, which no longer exists in Australia since they've stopped people smoking in bars 20 years ago, which is great. But as the old smoky bar, you know, you sort of you see someone, you catch someone's eye and it's sort of like there's some sort of communication there. Yeah, I like to see a little bit of smoky bar action between the five and four or anybody on the perimeter for that matter. Again, there's a communication there with eye contact that you have that will limit turnovers and create scoring opportunities. Coach, within the spacing of the three perimeter players, how do you like them to space around the post up? Again, we use a lot with our basketball intellect. We go into the Bill Bauer action a little bit um, as well. So we might get that other big setting screens for the post feeder. And we have a lot of shooters coming off that. And because of our perimeter threats, we can sort of pick and choose which one we choose to utilize at any given moment. So depending on the set, depending on the action that we've asked of the players to produce out of the post, but generally the standstill, you're going to be dictated to it for an element of that from your defense. So if you're going into the five man and if your guy is going to be right up in your grill after you've fed the post, well, don't just stand there, cut or go free somebody else up. But if he's going to drop onto the double or drop down you know, heavy onto the post and you're a shooter, then maybe hold your ground. It really depends on who the player is. It's personnel yeah. driven, but also reacting to what the defense gives you. My last start sub sit for you, coach, is it's a tie ball game. You're going to be on defense and the other team will have the last possession. They're going to be going full court. We'll say there's 20 seconds left on the clock. So it's a tied game. You're going to be on defense. Will you start sub sit, foul them to get the ball back, look to press them full court or a junk defense in the half court? Wow. Now I have a timeout before this. Yeah, you, you, you can have a, you have a timeout coming out of a timeout. All right, I love a jump defense in those situations. I feel like there's an element <laughs> of fun to it. But we're talking about putting the game on the line as well. So much goes into those sorts of decisions, but I know I've got to be, give you clarity on this. You want concise answers to the point, but you, you really want to see how the game's sort of evolved to get to that yeah. point. Has a junk defense worked after timeouts previously? If so, what did and will it work again? Have they come in prepared this time? You know, Do you know the coach and how the way they operate? If you've gone through all of their sets and you understand what they're looking to get during that period, sometimes it's easier just to stay into your man-to-man. Pressing up the floor at that stage with 20 seconds, depending on the foul count, uh, you know, you, certainly you might want to... Um, sort of rush those last few seconds. And if you can sort of take them out of their shape early, there's an element of merit to that as well. I'm not fouling them. Okay. Yeah. We, you're talking about fouling them to put them on the free throw line to go the other way for the win? Yeah. So you can, yeah, basically foul yeah. them early. You want to have the ball to win. Sort of hack-a-shack yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to yeah, take our exactly. scores with yeah. time, right? <laughs> scores with time? Yeah. Is it- uh, no, no, I'm putting that one <laughs> okay. away. No, for now. Okay, okay. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get him out of there. Um, <laughs> I'm going with junk one, press two. All right. 
with the junk, any sort of, maybe I know it's a lot depends, but just kind of your preference, triangle and two, box and one, any, what's kind of your go-to? We're a bit of a one, three, one team out of timeouts. One, because not too many teams yeah. have a one, three, one offense. Uh, and if you do, geez, you put that in just moments before the game. Like you don't go through all the preseason <laughs> and say, yeah, we got to get ourselves a one, three, one yeah. offense. Uh, <laughs> so that's probably our preference. Having said that, uh, we ran some pretty good one, three, one zones last year and we'd give up O boards and putbacks. <laughs> it's got to be. <laughs> talking about the game winner, it's going to be a lot of pleading with my players to make sure they find someone to crack in on after the shots released. But yeah, that would probably be it. Okay. Coach, j- just a really quick follow-up from me on this. We've talked about pace offensively for a lot of this podcast. And now we're kind of talking about late game situations a little bit here. Does your philosophy or does your thought process change on a made shot transition pace, say the last two to three minutes of the game when it's a tight score? Are you trying to hold it up more to call something specific or are you still wanting your guys to get up and down and play with that same pace? That's a really good question. Obviously, in a game winner situation, it's going to be a different, you're going to come down and, and run your set sure. or you're probably a timeout you're taking it side out of bounds. But if like two minutes to go and you're down three, are we walking it up to try and execute? I want to still continue to get out and run. Okay. Uh, even if we're up six with two minutes to go, just again, dip your toe in the water. If you can get yourself a layup, fantastic. Go make it an eight-point lead rather than sit on your six. If you built one way, and, and the way we're built is for speed, if you built one way and then you're like, well, now we're going to try and jam it into the post for, because we're being a little conservative down the stretch. And for me, you're taking away your characteristics built on age-old traditions of how to execute a game down the stretch. For me, it's like stay with who you are, stay with your strengths, stay with what you do well. When that ball's popping and you know the clock's extending, it, you're going to get something good. You don't want to be standing around with a ball in someone's hands. Again, we're not a great ISO team. You don't want the defense to be able to set up behind you. You still want to create opportunities to score. So for me, the way our team's built and the way we operate well, I still want to play with pace. Coach, a quick follow-up for me. I don't know if it'll be quick, but a little tangent. You mentioned it twice, not a great ISO team. Is that player-driven or can you teach certain aspects to become a better ISO team? I think there's been probably a little bit player driven, but a little bit on me as a coach in that we've been that one five pick and roll team in the late clock situation. But when you get switches and you've got the one five matchup and whether it be in the post or on the perimeter, we haven't been great in those situations of executing or getting a good shot. So if it's a a one man guarded by a five or a four or even a three on the perimeter, We've been so ingrained at finishing offenses in a certain way that we haven't really put the work in to the level that I probably should have with our group and being one-on-one and being able to beat your guy off the dribble and, and get a good shot. And it's something that we started to rectify maybe halfway through last season with more one-on-one drills at practice, boomerang action, getting it back, kickbacks. Like We've started to really make that part of our regular training day for two purposes. One, to become better in those situations from an offensive standpoint, but also just from a defensive standpoint, it's like you need to be able to guard your guy one-on-one and just ingraining that toughness is like, it's on you. you got no help. You get the stop. So there's dual purpose. We started to bring it in a little bit more in the second half of last season. The results weren't quite there. So 
from year three going forward, it's probably going to be an emphasis from the get-go from both sides of the ball. Is it personnel-driven? For sure. Having those great one-on-one players is part and parcel of what we're looking for in our recruitment. But at the same time, i got to be better at getting our guys better at that. Yeah. And emphasising the importance of it. Mm -hmm. The unassisted field goal is something that we certainly need to get better at. It's great to see that ball popping and we create it for each other. But, you know, at times you've got to get your guy who can just put it on his hip and say, all right, come get me. It's one-on-one. We're back in the playground. I'm going to get mine. And we've got to get better at that. With on that, are you thinking too about ways of maybe creating space for that one-on-one as far as how you move or actions you'll do with the other four players? Yeah, for sure. Last year, again, we played against Illawarra early in the season and we beat them comfortably three times. And then the fourth time, I think we're up by 17 in the last quarter. And they started switching everything and we went into a hole. It was like we didn't know what we were doing anymore. We couldn't execute. Uh, we were tentative. Timid was probably the word that struck me at the time. Is like We looked timid from an offensive standpoint and we blew that 17-point lead and lost. And that was probably the moment that we started to bring it in more. And, and again, with that, working on your late shot clock uh, scenarios and creating the movement, getting guys into spots that they like for their one-on-one contests and really working that in our practices. So... That was probably the breaking of the dam Mm. for us where it was like, wow, we really need to get better. Well, coach, you're off the start, sub, sit, hot seat. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for playing that game. That was was a lot of fun. Before we kind of close here, thank you for for getting up early this morning and spending time with us. This has been really fun for us. So thank you for your time. To close here, you've been successful coach, uh, player as well. You've been on some championship winning teams as a coach and you're building a fantastic program now. Uh, I'm wondering what, either on or off the court, would you consider maybe your greatest coaching moment so far in your career? Oh, wow. Greatest coaching moment. You know, Australians aren't great talking about themselves (laughs) and their accomplishments. You know what? I don't think I've achieved a great coaching moment just at this point in time from a head coaching standpoint. You know, I have pretty high expectations of myself and our club and what we want to achieve. And I'm pretty bloody minded about achieving those, but it hasn't happened. But from a a coaching, like being involved in a club, anytime you win a championship, it's satisfying. For me, the most satisfying championship was probably 2018 as an assistant coach with Melbourne United in the NBL. And the reason being was the pathway to get there was tough. We'd made a lot of mistakes in recruitment and building teams or trying to shortcut the process of building a championship winner. And the tough days that we had to get through, the not meeting expectations of ourselves, of the media, of fans, the cries for change, the And then the eventual evolving of that team to see guys become champions, become championship-caliber players, to see a championship-caliber culture grow. There's elements of toxicity to the culture at that club. And then to see the curing of that and then the growth into it almost – I mean, we won the championship because we had great personnel, but the growth into championship culture was really satisfying. And, you know, i got to credit Dean Vickerman, coach at Melbourne United, 
And a guy who's behind the scenes on that was a gentleman by the name of Trent Houghton, probably the first time he's ever been called a gentleman, actually. <laughs> a guy called Trent Houghton who came in as the culture specialist. And those guys, along with the high performance manager at the time, Eric Hollingsworth, basically eradicating what had existed starting from the get-go, even though these guys were wearing scars. And to build that for me and to be part of that, uh, along with Mike Kelly, the other assistant coach at the time, and Justin Schuler, it was really satisfying from that standpoint. And for me, it just re-emphasized the importance of culture ahead of talent. You know, yeah, we had talent in that season, but we had talent in seasons prior to as well. It was the culture working for each other, holding each other accountable, and the messaging from the coaching staff to the playing group of the importance of that and the constant reminders. And to see it come to fruition and the end result holding up a trophy was really satisfying. So that's the moment I'm constantly trying to relive when every decision I make regarding our team is based upon that feeling and reliving that. So that would probably be the greatest moment of my coaching career to this point is to have been part of that and to see it evolve. To replicate it with Southeast Melbourne Phoenix will be the greatest feeling on earth. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with Coach Simon Mitchell. Remember to check out slappingglass.com for more information on the newsletter, videos, and the Slapping Glass Plus membership. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass.